happy Pentecost Sunday. And you're like, okay, what's Pentecost Sunday? <laughs> well, that's the day 2,000 years ago, 50 days after Passover, the Jews on their calendar celebrated the Feast of Pentecost. Well, it's not a coincidence. 50 days after Passover, after Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead on the third day, 50 days later, 120 believers were in an upper room in Jerusalem, and they were tearing there. They were waiting there for the promise of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit came upon those 120 in that upper room, and they all began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them utterance, and that was the official birth of the New Testament church. It happened on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago. So churches all around the world, Christian churches, Christ-centered churches, are celebrating the promise of the Father, the gift and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Holy Trinity. Can we thank the Lord for the Holy Spirit? We love the Holy Spirit. And we just happen to be resuming our study in the book of Acts on this, the day of Pentecost. Every year after Easter, uh, we pick up where we left off the previous year, studying through the entire book of Acts, and we're in chapter 6 of the book of Acts. So let me give you a preview of what has happened thus far. In chapter 1 of Acts is the ascension of Christ. Right? After the resurrection, he appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses. Uh, they all testified of his being raised from the dead. And then before their very eyes, he ascended into the clouds and into heaven, where he's seated now at the right hand of the Father. That's called the ascension of Christ. Chapter 2, day of Pentecost, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, church begins. Chapter 3, uh, the main theme of chapter 3 of the book of Acts is this miraculous healing of a man who was born lame. He was placed at the gate called Beautiful, and he begged there. Every day of his life, he begged there. One day, Peter and John were on their way to prayer early in the morning, and a miracle happened. They spoke words of faith and healing into him, and he received a miracle. He jumped up. He never walked before. He jumped. He leaped. He was praising God, went into the temple, and a, and a great uh, controversy came out of that. Many were saved, but persecution, chapter 4, was the result of this great healing. Now we know the enemy, the devil himself, uh, the arch enemy of God and man and the church is the devil. He did not like this New Testament church stuff going on. He didn't like that the fact there was 120 and then 3,000 got saved. So now there's 3,120, you know, followers of Jesus. And so he comes against the church and against the leaders of the church at that time uh, and arrests Peter and some of the other apostles. And they're thrown in jail and God supernaturally delivers them. That's chapter 4. Well, if he can't beat you, he'll join you. So in chapter 5, the devil shows up in the church by way of hypocrisy. Uh, there were two members in that church, Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife couple, and uh, they promised to sell land and give all of it to the church. They didn't have to give all of it to the church, but they promised that they'd give it all, all of it to the Lord's work. And when it came time to bring that offering to the Lord's work, they withheld some of it, being deceitful, and lied to the Holy Spirit, and they dropped dead in the middle of worship service. We talked about that last year when we studied the fifth chapter. Well, now we come to Acts chapter 6. So you had persecution in chapter 4. You had hypocrisy in chapter 5. You have division in chapter 6 that rears its ugly head to try once again to stop the work of God and to hurt the church of Jesus Christ. So go with me to Acts chapter 6. Uh, we'll begin reading verse 1, stop there and, and uh, do some teaching and then go on from there. But here we go. 
But as the believers rapidly multiplied, good things were happening. I've entitled this message, Growing Pains, because the church was new and it was growing rapidly, and with growth comes new challenges. So as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers. So here's what's going on. At this particular time in the New Testament church, everyone that was a member of that church, and it was a church of about 30,000 members, there was 3,120 that were saved on the day of Pentecost. We know that number because the Bible gives us that number. Then there was 5,000 that were added. Usually, usually these numbers include just the men. Women and children weren't included. So if you include 8,000 men and you added women and children, you may be looking at about 30,000 people. Some biblical scholars say that the New Testament church in Jerusalem, early on in the book of Acts, that it actually got up to about 100,000 members. Now think about, with a large church, uh, comes, with that lar a large church will come large problems and challenges. So this is a new church, it's a growing church, it's a mega church. By the way, there are 400,000 churches in America. 400,000 churches that believe in Christ. They say they believe in Christ and teach from Scripture. 400,000. Of those 400,000 churches, there are only 1,800. Get this, only 1,800 of the 400,000 churches that are churches our size or larger. Only 18 out of the 1,800 out of the 400,000 churches in America have a membership of 2,000 and or greater in attendance. And so with large churches will come some large uh, problems. And because this church was large instantaneously and growing rapidly, they had a problem. What was the problem? Well, in this church, there were only Jews that were saved at this time. So there was some racial tension that was brewing. Now, here's what you need to understand. The gospel was for everybody. Jesus died for everybody. Initially, the gospel was only being preached to Jewish people. And it wasn't until Acts chapter 10 when Peter, instructed by God in a vision, an angel of God in a vision, to go to a guy's house by the name of Cornelius to preach the gospel that Cornelius in Acts 10 and his family all got saved, all got filled with the Holy Spirit, and it shocked all of the Jewish Christian believers. Because they thought, up to that point in time, they thought that you had to first become a Jew before you could become a Christian. They didn't know that you could be a heathen Gentile and that God would accept you and Christ would accept you and you could become a believer in Jesus. So back to chapter 6. All the members of the church at that time, they were all Jewish by descent. That was their race. In other words, their family line traced all the way back to Abraham. But you had two types of Jewish converts, people that were Jewish, and just because they got saved, they didn't lose the fact they were Jewish. Just like when you get saved, you don't lose the fact that you're Hispanic, you don't lose the fact that you're Caucasian, you don't lose the fact that you're Irish, or you don't lose the fact that you're, you're African-American. You don't lose that. You bring it with you, because that's who you are, but the predominant identity that you and I now identify with is not our culture, not our upbringing, not our race, but the fact that we are chosen of God, the fact that we are now children of the Most High God. And, and thank God for that. And so here's the awesome thing. In God's family, God has a huge family, and how many know that all families, all families have to deal with a little bit of strife? 
okay a lot of strife. How many, how many of you know that all families have to deal with strife from time to time? Church is no different. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. God has no grandchildren. We have a loving Heavenly Father. He loves us all the same, but we're not all the same. That's the beauty of God's big family, right? But He loves us all the same, and we're family. What makes us family? Well, what makes you family with your family, with your, your siblings? You're like, well, blood does, okay? Meaning what? You had the same daddy and or the same mother. Preferably the same mom and same daddy, right? Then that makes us family. That makes you brothers and sisters, right? All right. Now, as important as family is, and God loves your family, we love our family, we should pray for our extended family, we should pray for our siblings, that they all come to know Jesus. Because if your family, if your brothers and sisters, your blood brothers and sisters, if they don't know Jesus, but you do, and you go and you die, you're going to go to heaven, they're not going to spend eternity with you. As much as we want them to, they're not. So your relationship with them ends the day they die or the day you die, unless they know Jesus. If you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you'll die once. If you're born once, you'll die physically and spiritually, eternally. If you're born twice, born naturally, and then born again, you'll only die once physically because then you're going to live forever in heaven. So that's like theologically deep stuff. But anyway, I didn't want to go there, but I had to go there. Okay. So we hope they get born again. Now, what makes us family? What makes that person seated in front of you family? What makes that person seated behind you family? Blood does. Blood does. What, do they have the same daddy that I have? No, probably not. Hopefully not. And if they did, I hope you know that. (laughs) No, what makes us family is the blood of Jesus. Raise your hand if you've been born again. Look look at that. Keep your hand raised if you've been born again. You're my brother, you're my sister, right? Look, I got a big, y'all going to come over to eat today after church? Get ready, honey, right? (laughs) Not enough food. We'll pray. God will multiply it. But no, literally, seriously, I am going to spend eternity with you in heaven. You are going to spend eternity with me in heaven. And the only people that are going to be in heaven are God's sons and God's daughters, one big family, and God's our Father. And when you get there, there'll be a men's bathroom and a woman's bathroom. It's always going to be that way. That's what I'm telling you. (laughs) Yeah, now, you know I had to get that in somehow. But with large families come challenges, strife. The early church had growing pains. They had some discontent. What's the discontent? Well, the Greek-speaking Jews, who had now become Christians, and the Hebrew-speaking Jews had now become Christians. They're, they're both Jews, but they weren't Jews of the same cloth. The Hebrew-speaking Jews, were, they were like the real Jews. They were Hebrews. They spoke Hebrew. The Greek-speaking Jews weren't raised in Jerusalem, weren't born in Jerusalem. They were part of the, the dispersa. They were part of, of those that were dispersed around other parts of the world, and, and they came back for Pentecost and got saved. Many of them decided to stay there. Uh, many of them moved back to the Holy Land, but they didn't speak Hebrew. How can you be a Hebrew or a Jew and not speak Hebrew, right? And so there was some tension. There was some racial tension, and they, they had to learn how to get along and learn how to love one another and not allow the differences to become uh, a point of division, but to celebrate their differences. And how many know that even in families today, we have to learn how to celebrate our differences. Not everybody is as blessed in this world to be like you. 
Don't you wish everybody could just be like you, think like you, talk like you, act like you? And Oh, wouldn't you be happy if everyone was just like, well, darling, I'm sorry, not everyone is like you. Thank God. <laughs> now, we thank God for you, but we also thank God that not everyone's, that we're all different. God made us all different, and that's good. Difference isn't bad. It's good. And so what unites us is more than what may divide us or separate us. And so this early church had to get through this first hurdle. Greek-speaking Jews, Hebrew-speaking Jews, learning how to speak a new language, a language of heaven, a language of love, a language of acceptance. How many know that most, most relationships that experience conflict is because of a language barrier? Yeah, see, uh, men and women speak different languages. Because like men are from Mars and women are from Venus, I think the famous book once said. Which means men and women come from two different perspectives, two different worlds. Men, uh, one other famous author said, men speak blue, women speak pink. Yeah, like, what does that mean? Well, the way a man speaks is not the way a woman hears a man speak. Because when your wife says, you said what? Like, uh, I don't know, what did I just say? <laughs> you said blah, blah. I'm like, wow, but I didn't mean it that way. Because she hears through this filter of pink, and then a, a guy hears through a filter of blue. It's so like, for example, uh, I tell my wife, let's go for a bike ride. She hears through a filter of pink. Let's go together, ride side by side, and fellowship and talk while we ride. No, I'm thinking, let's go for a bike, bike ride. Keep up with me. I want to go at least 13 miles an hour. Let's go five miles in 25 minutes and get our heart rate up to about 128 beats per minute. Because that's what my Apple Watch tells me I'm doing, right? If I'm really riding. So she's like, I don't like riding with you. Like, you're leaving me behind. I'm like, I didn't realize that. So I go for my own bike ride, and then I come back and say, let's go for a bike ride. You and me going slow, talking, fellowshipping the whole time. That's cool. So you need both, right? So we speak different languages, and, and the way to get past conflict is to cross the language barrier. And in churches, we need to cross the language barrier. I mean, you got millennials that talk one way. You look fresh, or that's fresh, or whatever, or oh, whatever, I don't know. And then you got, then you got like... The old people, they talk one way. And then you got like the, the people in the middle talk another way. And, and, and so sometimes this the language, our communication goes crosswire. And that's what was happening here in the church. And so they had to address it in a godly manner. That's the key. Strife in the home, strife in the marriage. You're going to have it. There, this story, I love it because this, this chapter t reminds us there are no perfect churches. We think the early church, oh, they had the Holy Spirit. They had Peter, they had the apostles, they had miracles, oh, they, it, was, it was, I wish I could have been a part of the early, oh, they were a perfect church. No, they weren't, because Acts chapter 5 shows up, and you're like, whoa, they had hypocrites like that? Yeah, all churches have hypocrites. Don't look at me so holier than thou. <laughs> we know which ones are the hypocrites in here. <laughs> at the end of the day, we all are, right, at times, right? But God's grace is sufficient. And then the church had division. You know, the Greek-speaking believers were upset with the Hebrew-speaking, the Hebrew-speaking believers, and they felt like the widows weren't being distributed, the, the daily foods, blah, blah, blah. And so there, is, there are no perfect churches. Just like there, there's no such thing as a perfect marriage. There's no, there, there are no such thing as perfect kids. I know you young parents think your little kids are the absolute best. Wait till they're in seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth grade, eleventh grade, twelfth grade. Woo! I pray for you. 
okay? <laughs> because there are no perfect kids. There are no perfect parents. There, there is no perfect church, perfect pastor, perfect job, perfect school. Per- nothing's, there's only one person perfect, and his name is Jesus. And that's why we follow him. Amen. But here's what you need to know. God loves a growing church, and the church was growing rapidly. We, we read that. And uh, growth is a good thing, but growth always happens in stages, and with growth comes challenges, right? Uh, in Mark 4, 28, Jesus said, the earth produces the crops of its own. Uh, first the leaf, phase one, pushes through. Then the heads of wheat, phase two of, of growth, are formed. And finally, the grain ripens, the final stage. We all grow through in, in stages in life. Um, Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted the seed in your hearts. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. And, and growth is this miraculous thing. You know, uh, we plant a seed and we don't know how it grows, Jesus said. And yet, he knows because he created all things, but we don't. And, but it grows. It grows. Uh, the miracle of growth. You know, when our kids were little, we would take them in the garage and up against the wall, we would mark their height. And then next year, their birthday, we'd mark it again. Then next year, you know, and they could see, because they don't notice it, but they could see from year to year, they're growing. How many know that God expects us as his children from year to year, he expects us to be growing spiritually? How many of you know you should be more like Jesus this year than you were last year? And you know what that means? That means you're a nicer person to live with. If you're not a very nice person to live with, you need, you need to start coming to church all four services like I do. <laughs> and our, some of our staff does. Maybe that's a good start. Maybe that'll help. Or maybe, just maybe, you need to show up to church on time. Some of us have the 1145 service. Some of us have the 12 o'clock service. Some of us have the 12.15 service. Some even have the 12.30 service. And they're here at 12.30 and we're done by like 12.50. I'm not judging. I'm just saying. (laughs) So growth happens over time and it should be measurable by some form of evidence. But we don't grow overnight. It takes time. And so God's patient. We need to be patient with ourselves, with our spouses, with our children, with our churches, our businesses. Everything, all of life goes through this process, a series of growth. And God wants you to be like that tree talked about in Psalm 1, a tree planted by the rivers of living water. Because you have this continual source of living water. You're like a tree planted by the rivers of living water. Your roots go down deep and, 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 your, and your branches uh, go out far and wide and strong. And you bear much fruit in due season. That's God's will. Jesus said, herein is my Father glorified that you would bear much fruit. So there needs to be evidence of that fruit in your life growing. So this is what the church was going through uh, because of the racial tension, and so they had to handle it in a godly way. So verse 2 of Acts chapter 6 says this, So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers, and they said, We apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. Now, there's something very spiritual and very practical. Uh, This is going to be the introduction of the division of labor. That at the beginning of the early church, the apostles were doing everything. As the church continued to grow and the demands continued to grow, they realized they couldn't do everything. 
Because their primary responsibility, not because it was beneath them to serve uh, people or serve the widow's food, not because it was beneath them, but because of their gifting, their calling, and their anointing, they needed to stay faithful to their primary calling, which was praying and the ministry of God's word. And so what was happening is they were being distracted from that. And any time a church is distracted from their primary function, their primary calling, the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word, the further we remove from that, the greater the discontent, the greater the rumblings, the greater the complaint will be within that church. And so they had to address the problem and you can't address the problem till you first identify the problem. Then you can address the problem. So they called for a meeting of the 12. Now, God has a hierarchy. Because God believes in order, uh, and God believes in growth, and God believe, he believes in leadership. So there's order in his creation. There's order in the Trinity. You have the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not three separate gods. That would be idolatry. That would be polytheism. Christian theism believes in one God manifests in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. God's, the Father's God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But they're, they're, they're equal in personhood, but not in position. You have the Father, and the Son is submitted to the Father, and you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is submitted to the Son. So if you praise the Holy Spirit, he gives glory to the Son. If you praise the Son, he gives glory to the Father. So the, the, the Holy Trinity, they work and they all have their assignments in this unified, holy, whole, and holy Trinity. Well, there's hierarchy. In a home, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Head, headship speaks of authority. Delegated authority. That doesn't mean the husband is the master of the house or he's the dictator of the house. Get my shoes. Get them yourself. You know, where's my food? Get it yourself. You know, he's not like the chief dictator. He's the chief servant. And he, he follows the example of Jesus and how Jesus came not to be served but to serve. But he's the head. He's the head. Then the wife. Then the children. All equal in personhood but not in position. Every company has a C-suite. You have the CEO, the COO, the CFO. You have hierarchy. You have rankings. You have, you have a division of labor. That's how things get accomplished in the world. In government, you have, you have the separation of powers, right? Uh, so it's not all focused in one area, the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch. And our founding fathers had wisdom from Scripture to establish this, cover, this government. And it worked so well up until recently because we have been a nation based on the Judeo-Christian ethics, based on the teaching of Scripture. So even in the animal kingdom, you have rankings, all right? You have different levels. Why? Because God is a God of divine order. He wants everything to be done decently and in order. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, 40, if we can pull that up, guys. Here we go. Let's read this out loud together. Let all things be done decently and in order. What does the word decent mean? Mean. How, how many know that as a country we're losing our sense of decency? It, it means a sense of honorable, noble, and excellent manner. Uh, it means good taste. God wants everything to be done in a decent manner with good taste, with nobility and honor. But he also wants there to be order. He wants there to be order in your life. 
So you and I make bad, we make, we make bad, we make horrible gods. We all need a God, the God, the one and only true God. We make bad gods. We make bad kings over our own life. So we have to have one king, King Jesus. We need to submit and surrender to Christ as our Lord. And as, as a man submits to Christ, and he's, he's living under the lordship of Christ, then a wife can submit to her husband because he's submitted to Christ. Then the kids can submit to their parents because they're submitted to Christ, who is the ultimate, the head. Uh, and then you have order. So many homes, so many families, so many churches, so many communities, and so many nations have chaos because authority is not revered. Authority is not respected. And I'm speaking about delegated authority that ultimately comes from God. So this word order, it means rank of character. It means a dignified manner. And it's a military term. And it speaks of military discipline, an unbroken, unified line of defense. So God does everything in creation with decency and with order. And so in, in order to solve this problem, here's the solution that the apostles, who were the people in power. So Jesus is the head of the church. The church is not an organization as much as it is an organism. The church is a living, breathing organism. It's the body of Christ. The church, though, must be run like a business. It's not a business that we run like a church. It's a church that we run like a business. Big difference, but very important difference. In your own personal life, hopefully, you, your family's not a business, but you run your family like a business, which means what? Which means you have a budget, uh, which means you prioritize your income, uh, which means you, you, there's a division of labor in the house, right? Uh, who's responsible for this, and who's responsible for that, and who's, how are we all going to do this, and what part do the kids play, and, you know, taking out the trash. They're, they're, we see how it works in a home because you have to have certain business principles and practices that you are applying, or you're going to have total chaos, right? Like dads, let's say if you get paid every week or every two weeks or at the end of the month, let's say you cash your check. You bring it home. You have one big cookie jar in the center of the kitchen table. You throw all the cash in that cookie jar, and you say to all of your family members, whatever you need, take it when you need it. How many of you know by the end of the day it's all gone? And you're out of money. So you got to account. Hello? So a church is no different. And in a church, God has established authority under Christ. And the authority in churches are the elders who govern, the senior pastor who leads, and the staff who run the ministries, and then all the volunteers. And so you have structure. At this particular time, it was Jesus the head and the apostles. And they were doing everything. So now a division of labor is going to be introduced. They're not going to take the example from the Old Testament because the Old Testament is done and gone. They're not going to bring the Levitical priesthood in and assign priests to the different ministries. No. There's a whole new concept of ministry, and now for the first time, this term is going to begin to be used in the Bible, deacons. Deacons. The word deacon comes from the Greek word, which means to serve. And because they had this need, there were spiritual needs and there were our material needs in the church. You cannot neglect the spiritual needs at the expense of the material needs. The apostles, their primary calling was prayer and, and ministry of the word. But they were so wrapped up in the material temporal needs of distributing food, they were taken away from their time spent in prayer and the, and the preaching of the word of God. And they said, we can't do this. 
You cannot sacrifice the spiritual needs of a congregation for the physical needs of that congregation uh, because the, further, the, the more you re- remove yourself away from meeting the spiritual needs, the more you're going to have contention, strife, rumblings, and discontent in the church. The more we have prayer and the ministry of prayer and preaching and the ministry of the word, the healthier church is going to be. The primary responsibility of a pastor, he would love to do all, the, I'd love to do all the weddings. I'd love to do all the funerals. I'd love to do all the visitation. I'd love to do all the counseling. I love people. I'd love uh, one-on-one interaction with people. But as the church grows, you need to have this division of labor. You need to raise up godly deacons to help serve. You need to raise up volunteers to help serve. You need to raise up a staff uh, and associate pastors to help do the, the ministry functions of that church. And everybody, based on their calling and based on their gifting and based on their anointing, they are assigned a ministry so that everyone does their part so that together the church remains healthy and strong and growing and people's spiritual needs, first and foremost, and people's physical needs are being met and Christ is being glorified. That's the end result that God wants for his church. So verse 3, and so brothers, select seven men who are well respected and are full. Now they're going to they're select these, the answer to a problem is leadership. And they're going to raise up new leaders. And here are the qualifications of these new leaders. Select seven men who are well respected, number one. Full of the spirit, number two. And have wisdom, number three. And we will give them this responsibility. So now is the introduction of deacons. And of this very large church, they select seven, seven men. Seven men. And these seven men were godly men. And they had, you know, in the Bible, to be an elder, there are certain qualifications you have to meet. To be a deacon, there are certain qualifications. And the the Bible actually lists them. You know, some of you may be new to this church thing, and you come into a church, and it's like we have our own lingo, right? We talk about pastors and elders and deacons. Like, where does all that terminology come from? It comes from the New Testament. These are very biblical terms. So every church has represented authority. The represented authority of, of God in a church is, of course, Christ is the head of the church, but then he sets elders in that church. Later on, the apostles couldn't be a part of every New Testament church that was springing up in Galatia and Philippi and Corinth, so Paul instructed Timothy to, to raise up elders in every church. Elders are responsible for the, the, the guarding and the protection of the vision, the culture, and the governance of that church. And out of those elders, there's a preaching elder. Deacons have no formal authority in the area of governance, never in Scripture. And in this instance, they were charged by the apostles, later on by elders in the churches. The deacons are there to serve and minister to the temporal, physical needs of that congregation. So once again, you have this division of labor, and you have structure, and you have order. And what were the three qualifications? That's what I want to talk about just for a moment as we begin to wrap this up. Number one, they were to have standing. They were to be well-respected. You see, the apostles didn't say, hey, uh, we we got some need for the uh, Greek-speaking widows that need food distributed. Uh, Do we have anybody out there that would like to serve in this area? Yeah, yeah, me here over here, Pastor. I I like eating. Can I eat while I help serve those widows? Yeah, I mean, we're we're desperate. We'll take you. Anybody else? Uh, How about me, Pastor? You know, I used to work in the kitchen. Okay, come on up, you know. No, 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 no. This was just to distribute food, but because it was done for the glory of God, 
they picked the absolute best men. Number one, they were well-respected. That word respected comes from a Greek word, uh, martureo, where we get the word martyr from. And, the, and it means to be a witness, to be a witness. In other words, he's saying, find seven men that, first of all, have a good testimony. Church, how many of you know? We're not perfect, I know, none of us are. But how many know that God wants to have a good testimony? Husbands, how many know at home you should have a good testimony that you are a man whose heart is surrendered to Christ and your wife and kids see the evidence of that? Wives, how many of you know that at home, I know we're not perfect, but at home your husband and your kids should look at you and they should be able to say you have a good testimony of Jesus Christ. You're a good witness that Christ is. How many of you know when we go to work, we should have a good testimony at work? People should know uh, that you are a Christ follower and they should say there's something special about you. No, it doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you bat a thousand, but there's something different about you. You're more loving. You're more kind. You're more thoughtful. You're a harder worker than all the other pagans that show up on Monday after partying all weekend. Hello, don't shout me down now because I'm preaching real good. You have the best attitude. And if you don't have a good testimony of Jesus, don't tell anybody you're a Christian yet. And please don't tell them you attend Trinity Church. <laughs> At least not yet. So these men had a good reputation. Right? The second thing is they were spiritual. They had spirituality. Uh, what did the Bible say about them? They were full of the Holy Spirit. Ah, to have a church of men and women who are full of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? Well, what does it mean to be full of anything, <laughs> right? Uh, <clears throat> what does it mean to be full of food? That means you're controlled by food. What does it mean to be full of wine? That means you're drunk. You're being controlled by the alcohol. And the Bible says in Ephesians 5.18, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess or debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be full. Let the Holy Spirit control your emotions. Let the Holy Spirit control your attitude. Uh, allow the Holy Spirit to put you in check. When you begin to act more like the world and less like Jesus, let the Holy Spirit sound the alarm and say, oh, I need, to, I, need to, I need to empty myself of me and I need to get refilled with the Holy Spirit. So they, were, they, were, they had good standing. They had, they had spirituality. And number three, they had skill. They had skill. They had wisdom. Now, the Greek word for wisdom here is the Greek word Sophia. Sophia. That's a, it's a beautiful name that, uh, that parents named their, their daughter, Sophia. And it means wisdom. And it means this. It, it, means, it means insight to see the true nature of things. Oh, how we need wisdom today. Insight to see the true nature of things. Now listen, you can have knowledge. And thank God for knowledge. God places no premium on ignorance. You can have, get as many degrees behind your name as you possibly can. But just because you have a lot of knowledge doesn't mean you have wisdom. Because wisdom is the correct application of knowledge. You can't have wisdom without knowledge because you need certain facts to know how to apply those facts, and that's what wisdom does. But let me tell you something. You could, you could be the most knowledgeable person in this auditorium, in this service today. The most knowledgeable, the most degreed, and we celebrate that because God places no, ignorance, no, no premium on ignorance. But if you don't have wisdom, you don't have anything. You can be the least educated person in a traditional sense, in this service today, and yet you could be the wisest person in here. Why? 
Because wisdom is not acquired, wisdom is a gift that must be received. And James 1.5 says, if any of you, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally. He gives freely. But let him that asks, ask in faith, nothing wavering. For God cannot bless a double-minded man. Wisdom is a spiritual gift. And I pray that God would grant you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of his Son, Jesus Christ. Wisdom always comes before knowledge. And these men not only had a good reputation, they not only were full of the Spirit, but they had skill, they had ability that was a gift that they received from God that gave them great wisdom. And so look at verse 5 and 6. Everyone liked this idea. <laughs> you know what's interesting about this? The, the, the apostles didn't, didn't come together and say, oh, well, we need to pray all night to figure out what we're going to do. How many know there are some things in life you don't have to pray about? There are common sense, logical uh, solutions to many of the challenges that we face, and it takes no prayer. I mean, don't take prayer out of it. I'm sure they, they lived a prayerful life, but they didn't pray all night to figure out, oh, what are we going to do? No, it just common sense dictated to them how they would address this problem. How many know that if you open up the refrigerator at home and you're out of milk, you don't have to pray, Lord, shall I go to the store today to buy milk? Please give me a sign from heaven that I must go buy milk today. <laughs> Empty milk says, go buy some milk, okay? So common sense, they come up with this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. Philip, uh, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, Nicholas of Antioch, who was an earlier convert to the, con convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed, now prayers introduced, prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. And the laying on of hands is a ministry that's talked about throughout Scripture, and it's where blessing is bestowed, honor is bestowed, grace, a gift, a spiritual gift can be bestowed through the laying on of hands. Even healing can take place through the ministry of the laying on of hands. Hebrews chapter 6 even talks about the ministry of the laying on of hands. And so these seven men, who, by the way, all of them had Greek names, which meant where the grumblings were coming from out of the, the Greek contingency of the New Testament church. The, the, the apostles in the wilderness said, let's find the seven most godliest men and we'll put them over this ministry to make sure that the needs of the Greek-speaking believers are being met. And they found these seven men who they gave this ministry of service to, which freed them up to continue in the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word. And here's the big question. Here, here, here is the, the million-dollar question. What was the end result of all of this? How was God glorified because they handled strife and conflict in a godly way? In other words, the Greek-speaking believers didn't say, well, bless God, we'll just go across the street of here in Jerusalem and we'll start our own church. We'll start the first church of Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. How's that? And you can have your own church. And we'll, I mean, no, that's not the godliest way to handle problems in a church. Come on, church, are you, are you with me? There's a solution. There's a godly solution. So here's the result. Look at verse 7, Acts 6. Let's read it out loud together. The word of God prospered. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased dramatically. Not least, a great many priests submitted themselves to the faith. Three action words were the result of the action of the apostles. God's word prospered. The disciples increased 
dramatically, and many priests were converted to the faith. And when the church is filled with men and women who are of good reputation, men and women full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, men and women who have wisdom, standing, spirituality, and skill, the byproduct and the result will be Christ will be glorified in a community and many people will come to faith and know who Jesus is. And that's what we want at the end of the day. We want to plunder hell and populate heaven. Amen. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we humbly come before you. Thank you for the privilege that we have uh, to study the scriptures. And Lord, I pray that each of us right here, right now, would just take a moment and ask, Lord, what would you have me, me, do with this message? Lord, how am I in the area of my standing, my witness, my testimony? Does it need some work? Does it need some help? Lord, I thank you that you're not condemning me, but you're challenging me today. And by your grace and by your spirit, have your way in that area of my life. Lord, maybe it's in the area of spirituality. Lord, I've been full of anger and I've been full of a lot of things, but I need to be full of your spirit and I need to be full of faith. And Lord, I've been running on empty. So Lord, help me carve out time every day to just get into your presence and begin to allow my cup to overflow once again. And Lord, maybe, maybe I need wisdom. Maybe, maybe I've been depending on the arm of the flesh and I've been, I've been acting on my knowledge, but I've come up against a wall and Lord, I need wisdom. And so I ask that you would grant me wisdom. Lord, I thank you for a spirit of wisdom coming upon me right now. Lord, I pray that prophetically over men and women right here, right now in this service. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you can know his love, grace, and forgiveness. Just say this prayer out loud with the rest of us. Say it with your own heart. Mean it from your, uh, say it with your own mouth and mean it from your own heart. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart, come into my life, be my Lord, be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my Father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit. Give me strength to live for you, serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?